while I get the opportunity to speak with uh, Dr. Heather Tick, who is um, actually one of the uh, members of our steering committee for our annual conference. And uh, Dr. Tick has really been a, um, actively involved in uh, the field of pain medicine for oh, probably about 30 years. And she first started and uh, uh, co-founded and directed one of the first interprofessional pain centers in Toronto uh, for almost two decades. And then she went on to the University of Arizona to uh, design and implement an integrated pain medicine clinic for Medicaid patients. And then in 2012, she became the first Gunlock Endowed Professor of Integrative Pain Medicine at the University of Washington, so right up the road from IFM. And uh, Dr. Tick has written extensively on integrative pain medicine topics for a variety of publications. And one of the, her, uh, she's actually uh, uh, co-edited a number of textbooks. She's written a a, a consumer book on holistic pain relief a few years ago, and most recently, uh, she wrote uh, as uh, one of the lead authors on the Consortium Pain Task Force white paper, evidence-based non-pharmacological pharmacologic strategies for comprehensive pain care. And it's in that I want to talk with you, Heather, a, a little bit about that paper, and then we'll go off on, on different topics. But I, I found the paper really fascinating and, and a wonderful overview of, of uh, what one can do um, with, as you, as the title says, non-pharmacological uh, strategies. And I think the, the first uh, question I'd like to ask you is, um, there is um, so much uh, discussion and I think misunderstanding about categorizations of pain states and specifically how chronic pain is categorized. I, I thought you could talk a little bit about some of uh, those uh, understandings and maybe misunderstandings and how that maybe has uh, uh, is results in some of these under-recognized uh, chronic pain issues. Sure, very nice to talk with you today, Dan. So chronic pain is a very complex uh, condition and it, it requires um, very um, uh, circular thinking to, to try and be as inclusive as possible and to what could actually be going into the creation of uh, chronic pain. Um, it's, it tends to be not as simple as uh, somebody who breaks their leg and then has pain. You understand a cause and effect and treatment is fairly um, circumscribed. It's, it's fairly specific. Um, and then you have an expected outcome with an expected timeline of outcome. Once you get into chronic pain, till now we've been defining it as a timeline. So pain that lasts, you can get various definitions, three months or six months, that becomes chronic pain. But that really isn't adequate because we're now starting to learn that there are actually different processes that go on, mainly in the central nervous system, but also affecting peripheral nervous system, that then um, lead to the processes uh, that we now call 
chronic pain. So we have mechanisms that are supposed to allow us to ignore non-life-threatening pain. Life-threatening pain is it's, it's really the reason why we have pain, is to warn us, is to get our hand off of the stove, uh, out of the fire, to, get our, to stop walking on our broken leg, because those are potentially life-threatening conditions, especially in pre-medical societies. So what you have with chronic pain is you have pain that doesn't save your life, doesn't do anything to enhance your life. As a matter of fact, it makes your life very difficult. And so why has this happened where uh, pain persists when there's not a life-threatening situation? So one reason might be that there's an ongoing uh, urgent acute problem. Uh, people have uh, muscle tears, uh, tendon tears, uh, arthritic problems. Those can be what are called nociceptive pain, which is uh, the, more along the lines of acute pain that just go on for a long time because nobody's ever addressed them. Nobody noticed that they had problems with their muscles, their tendons, their fascia, their, uh, their joints in the way that, that needs to be addressed. Um, and then uh, the other reason is the majority of chronic pain that we're seeing these days. And it is that the, uh, the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system has become sensitized and is augmenting pain messages. So if we go back to the reason why we have pain to save our lives, uh, there, is, there are mechanisms built into our system, our central nervous system and our, our brain that enable us to ignore non-life-threatening pain. That's what's supposed to happen. And in cases that we're finding now with this epidemic of chronic pain is that what we have is this enhancement of pain signals instead of the damping down of pain signals by the central nervous system and the mechanisms that are designed to allow us to function in spite of pain. Um, could you talk a little bit about the primary care clinician and what do you think are the the main ways that he or she should be educating themselves and what are, what are some of these modalities that you think that they can incorporate into their practice? Sure, thank you for that question. It is very widely acknowledged that pain education, certainly in medical schools, is woefully inadequate. Nursing schools probably get a little bit more. Veterinarians get a lot of pain education but medical doctors don't. And so that does raise a problem and puts the onus on practitioners to try and develop skills and have a, a, a menu of strategies that they're going to be able to utilize in order to help their patients, which are now at epidemic proportions. And so uh, education through organizations that, that teach about the fundamental determinants of health, like IFM, uh, will be extremely helpful in trying to sort out what some of the things are you can do. So one of the first things that I like to do with patients, and that I have to say I find the most, Im most impactful intervention, is to look at their nutrition and look at, at it from a functional medicine perspective. Uh, what are they eating? How are they eating? When are they eating? How is their body reacting to it? And how can we improve that situation? Uh, 
So I'm fond of telling my patients that they change their body chemistry every time they eat, and they either make it more inflamed or less inflamed. And that tends to, to, uh, to stimulate buy-in to the idea that there's something they can do that can dramatically improve their health. So that type of education is, is extremely important and either collaborating with someone who, who does holistic style nutrition uh, or learning to do it yourself as a practitioner is, is invaluable and would be in the first order of business that I would recommend. The other lifestyle factors uh, like sleep, exercise, uh, stress management, are all also extremely important. And again, those are all topics that get lip service when we go to conventional uh, allopathic style schools. And so we come out with an education about what to do about many uh, very drastic conditions that will comprise about 5% of our medical education uh, and, and nothing for the other or very little for the, the rest of the 95% of our patients who are going to have chronic conditions, including pain. So looking for, for that type of, of guidance or collaborating with people who have that expertise is extremely important. And, and I really can't emphasize enough that we do have twin crises right now. The, the opioid crisis is what is getting all the political attention, but what we also have is a pain crisis. We don't treat it adequately, but the pain crisis is, is not just an isolated thing of pain. It's actually a health system crisis. We don't have a health promotion system in our, uh, in our culture. We don't have uh, patient self-efficacy uh, very readily um, uh, involved with, within the, uh, the standard of medical practices. Uh, it's, it's difficult to, to get that into our, our seven-minute appointments and, uh, and, and within the parameters of what we have and with, within patient expectations as well. So we have a culture that is addicted to drugs in a general way as well as specific ways. So we're addicted to the idea that drugs can solve all our problems, whereas lifestyle actually has much more impact on the, most of the problems we have when we're talking about uh, non-life-saving drugs, of course. So if somebody needs insulin, they need insulin. If somebody has a raging sepsis, they need antibiotics. When people need surgery, they need surgery. We're not talking about that type of medicine. But when we're talking about chronic ill health and uh, pain goes in parallel with chronic ill health, then you also have increased in uh, all of the chronic conditions that are bio, cycle, and social. There's an additional benefit to many of the non-pharmacological uh, pain uh, strategies. And you said unlike drugs and surgery, they involve patient participation and a commitment to self-care. And I think those clearly that goes along with what you were saying and, and how you need to, we need to reframe these things for a patient because we're all so, um, and I think that's part of the opioid crisis and also uh, give me a pill for the pain as opposed to what are the, uh, framing it in a larger way, what are the other things you can do to, to manage and, and improve uh, that, uh, uh, that, that chronic pain that you have? Yeah. 
And I think a lot of uh, patients feel a tremendous amount of anxiety and uncertainty when they have pain. And if the practitioner can reassure them that they have many different strategies that they'll be able to try, and that mainly they will accompany them on the journey. It is the patient's journey. The patient has to take responsibility for doing the things that they can do uh, the, for the you know 99% of the time that they're not there with the practitioner, that uh, that that but that the practitioner will be there as a resource to accompany them on the journey that they're on, so that the 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 person in pain doesn't need to worry that there's something that there's missing uh, from the diagnosis from the uh, from the awareness of what the, what the situation is. We, we also have this misapprehension out there that pain can be eradicated. And certainly with acute pain, when you have a broken leg and you take an opioid, it feels like pain is eradicated. But that's not a parallel with what happens in the chronic situation because chronically you become accustomed, uh, tolerant of the medications and then ultimately dependent on them. And then ultimately the medications start to cause their own types of pain. And we know from the literature now for, for a couple of decades that people who are on chronic opioids tend not to function as well as people who are not on chronic opioids. And this is looking at similar uh, uh, diagnoses, similar uh, status of injury uh, or uh, level of pain. And so this idea that drugs can solve problems uh, is oversold. That's part of what has led us to be so addicted to the idea that we are entitled to pain relief. And that's been very common in the, in the press and in, uh, in, among certain groups. Um, it's like saying, you know, someone is entitled to a cure for cancer. We can't promise outcomes. All we can do is our best to provide the best, the safest care, the most compassionate care. Uh, but we can't ultimately give a, an absolute guarantee of a cure for cancer or an elimination totally of pain. And that needs to be recognized within the community. Another um, uh, issue is, is the issue of hurt versus harm. Uh, that's really, really important because a lot of people become uh, phobic of movement once they develop pain. And, and I understand why. I've been in pain myself. And so you might be reluctant to move. And yet that just aggravates the problem in the long run. I mean, there's a few situations, like if you have a broken limb, you don't want to be standing on it and moving on it unless it's casted properly. But once the stability and the um, uh, the integrity of the musculoskeletal has been determined, then movement is uh, part of the uh, healing process that has to take place. The old uh, saying of if you don't move it, you lose it is really very, very true. And with the new research we have on fascia, that is becoming even more evident of how important it is for us to move. And athletes know this. They know that they can play when they're hurt. They just have to be more careful when they're actually injured. Now, I'm sure the hurt is also an injury, but it's, it's at a level that doesn't 
threaten the structural integrity of the body if the body's moved. It's the type of pain that thrives with movement and, and either will improve with movement, if, and if won't improve with movement, it will at least not deteriorate with movement. Because I see people every day who have stopped moving because they have pain, and year by year they get worse unless they, unless they turn that around. Mm -hmm. So one area I wanted to dive into a little bit was mitochondrial dysfunction and what uh, uh, I'm quoting you from the paper, you said mitochondrial dysfunction is being recognized as a root cause of many illnesses, including many, uh, including pain related conditions. And I wonder if you could amplify on that a bit uh, in terms of what, what particular uh, mitochondrial uh, dysfunction and what what ways can we improve that? So mitochondrial DNA is the most fragile in the body and has the highest need for uh, uh, free, for uh, uh, repair from free radical damage. So needs high levels of antioxidants. In North America, we have a very inadequate diet uh, for many uh, of people in our population. And they're missing uh, fresh food. They're missing uh, the, the sources, the natural sources of antioxidants. And they're not supplementing adequately as well. Not that supplementing uh, takes away the need for fresh fruit and vegetables and, and natural, naturally occurring antioxidants. Um, but uh, it can, be, uh, can um, improve the situation. Um, so the idea of mitochondrial dysfunction is we know that there are major mitochondrial disorders, genetic disorders that uh, threaten longevity and, and in some cases are incompatible with, with life. Uh, but what we're talking about here are the, the subtle dysfunction that happens when the, the mitochondria can't keep up with DNA production. And we have, because of, of nutrition, because of the increased use of uh, toxics and pesticides and the prevalence of heavy metals, it's becoming much more of a problem because each of those substances interferes with mitochondrial function. But so do most drugs. If you look up a list of drugs that are mitochondrial poisons, it's just about everything which is really pretty horrifying because we're taking people who are already compromised with illness and then we're giving them drugs which make it impossible for their mitochondria to keep up with their energy needs and their detoxification needs. And so we, we need to pay attention to this. I think we got away with it for, for human history till now because it didn't um, threaten longevity in a major way, but I think we've turned the corner because of our level of industrialization and pollution and the, uh, the liberal use of drugs and medications which haven't been adequately studied when used in combina combinations and when used in the concentrations that they are. Um, so, you know, I regularly will see patients who come in to see me for a new assessment and they'll be on 40 drugs. And it's, it's horrifying. You look at this mix of drugs and you just wonder what is the, is the metabolism of this person able to, how is it able to function at all 
with all of the metabolites of these drugs and the drugs themselves. It, it's, it's mind boggling. And so many of these drugs have never been tested in combination. And certainly they haven't been tested against uh, the, all the chemicals and heavy metals that we're exposed to as well. So it's something that we have to take into account, but it's nothing that we have an algorithm for right now. Uh, there's, there's no, um, well, it, it isn't even being taught in, in conventional medical schools. And so this needs to seep into our level of consciousness. Uh, and awareness, and we have to look at, for example, you look at a patient with fibromyalgia, and they usually look toxic, they are fatigued, they have tremendous muscle tenderness, they have hyperalgesia, so things that shouldn't hurt them, like a light touch does hurt them. And it's, it's if you look at what mitochondria should be doing for them, uh, you, it, it's not difficult for me to say, gee, I wonder if this is a mitochondrial dysfunction and should we be uh, supplementing them with uh, antioxidants, put them on a really good, uh, mainly plant-based diet, get them into a far infrared sauna and uh, uh, make sure that they sleep, deal with their stress and look for sources of toxics in their environment to try and eliminate those to help them to improve. From uh, diving down a little bit more from a clinical perspective, do you, is there any specific way that you objectify mitochondrial dysfunction from a laboratory or uh, that sort of thing, short of a, a muscle biopsy? Is there, is there any particular tests that you use to kind of hone in on that or, or not? Uh, th there, there isn't at this point. At the university, I'm uh, limited with what I can do um, with outside labs, and we don't really have anything uh, within our, within our um, lab um, protocols uh, to be able to uh, do things other than diagnose the major life-threatening mitochondrial disorders. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at um, a, a patient and, and making some uh, pretty good assumptions, taking a, a history about potential mitochondrial disruption and then dealing with that clinically. Exactly. We're going to be talking at the annual conference about endocannabinoids and of course uh, we're going to have a, a number of uh, lectures on it and there's a lot of research on it. I'm just wondering um, are you uh, using those for pain and if so what is your experience with those? I have many patients who will use um, uh, cannabinoids uh, and mainly CBD uh, for pain. Um, and, and they have good results. So it, it offers uh, yet another uh, way in which uh, people can um, uh, get some relief from pain, particularly some of the difficult types of pain to treat, which are uh, neuropathic pain uh, of different sorts. Um, and and the, the cannabinoids do tend to, uh, uh, to, to make a difference. Um, the, I have some people, I mean, different people will use different formulations. Some will just simply smoke pot and they'll be getting THC as well as uh, the cannabinoids. Um, uh, the, 
you know, there, there's so much we don't know. There's so many questions we have. There are different strains, different molecules uh, within the plant uh, that need to be investigated. The Dutch, I think, are very far ahead of us in terms of their research, and they've actually developed different strains that are very specific for different health conditions with different compositions. But we're just at the beginnings of our exploration here. Uh, we're also still, uh, there are still some limitations based on uh, where you work. Um, I'm at a a university that is um, federally funded and so um, you you know prescribing these things is difficult I can talk to people about what they're using um, but I don't actually uh, have the ability to prescribe it um, but fortunately where I work uh, one doesn't need a prescription in order to get uh, access to what they need um, in that department uh, so I have to say, you know, it help, they often help with sleep, uh, they often help with dealing with stress, uh, and there's more and more research coming out on, onto the different, um, uh, different advantages of the, the different um, uh, parts of the different types of cannabinoids uh, in the plant and, and terpenes as well. The... Um, uh, I mean, the, the caution really is that uh, over the years, I've seen many people who self-medicate and they treat their own psychiatric disorders uh, by um, smoking pot and not dealing with their issues in other ways. And that is a concern. The other concern is during the, uh, the teen years when there's a lot of... of um, uh, development going on uh, in the brain that there there may be some long-term impact to high use in, in those years so uh, so there are some cautions there's a lot we don't know uh, but it's certainly there's some very promising uh, directions as well mm -hmm. yeah I think there's there's never a panacea for everything and I think we we have to get away from a black and white viewpoint on any kind of nutraceutical or um, uh, phytochemical. So mm -hmm. I, I very much agree with you. So I mentioned before that you were on the uh, steering committee for this 2019 uh, program on stress, pain, and addictions. And you'll be giving a plenary talk, and then you're going to be giving a, a concurrent talk on uh, myofascial pain injuries. And I, I just thought I'd uh, ask you, um, what are, uh, you can talk a little bit about your presentations, and also what uh, specific things uh, are you looking forward to uh, about that conference, having been involved in it? Uh, I think there's uh, a wonderful um, lineup of, of speakers and talks. I'm, I'm very excited to um, uh, to hear and interact with uh, with the people who are going to be there. The uh, what I like is the is the balance of looking at um, at pain, opioids, and looking at looking at all the aspects of it, uh, many different facets uh, in terms of uh, stress and how one can uh, can literally change your brain by uh, by changing your um, behaviors and and responses around stress, um, and so I, I think that's that's a very exciting area 
to, uh, to, to hear about. Um, and so I think it's, it's going to be a really, really interesting uh, several days uh, with, uh, with excellent speakers and, and, uh, and workshops and, and um, uh, a small, smaller group uh, um, meetings as well. Um, uh, the, uh, in the, the myofascial uh, injury workshop uh, that I'm um, planning to do, I'm hoping to go through uh, common injuries that people get that we see all the time that tend to get directed towards uh, surgeons and, uh, and neurologists and other practitioners who don't actually know how to treat the, the muscle problem or even assess the muscle, the myofascial part of the problem, uh, because that's a very specialized uh, area of, of expertise that is, is had mostly outside of the medical system. So the, the people who are, are do, dealing with this most effectively have been people like massage therapists, chiropractors, osteopaths, and uh, physical therapists and um, and the medical model hasn't done well with those injuries and yet they really comprise the majority of the uh, pain population has uh, has some component of myofascial problems so i'm hoping that that will be interesting uh, for people and will give them some uh, practical um, approaches that they can use immediately uh, after they after they go home from the conference. Well, I'm sure it will, and I'm looking forward to hearing that. And as you say, I think there's going to be a wide variety of interesting presentations. So, Heather, I want to thank you for spending a couple of minutes and talking about an area where you have a, a wide range of expertise. And um, I look forward to seeing you at the conference. Me too. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much.